0: So grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. You can be seated. Let's pray once again. Father, empower the preaching of your word. Convict, Lord, where conviction needs to happen. Console, Lord, where hearts are hurting. Cause us to love you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would do that which you have deemed prudent and necessary with your word. Father, we ask that you not leave us the way that we are. Pray this in Jesus' name. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of Booth was at hand. John began his gospel by taking us to the mountaintop in his exaltation and proclamation of who Jesus is. The first five verses of the book of John are sublime in their explanation of who this Jesus is. So much so that for the first three centuries of the church, it was these verses that captivated the church fathers. It was these verses that they meditated on more than any other. It was these verses that propelled them in their preaching of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. John 1, 1-5 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word Has not overcome it. The rest of the book of John is just a reiteration of the first five verses of John. It's just an explanation or an expansion of these verses. John then, beginning in verse 9, lays out the reality of what we should expect to see in his gospel account verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And John ends these thoughts with verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we've traveled through this gospel, we have seen more and more the reality of these truths, these beginning verses being lived out in the person and life of Christ. And as John has taken us along in his account, we've had to leave that mountaintop of chapter 1 and begin traveling down into the valley, down into the battleground that proves the reality of what was proclaimed on the mountaintop. Before Jesus was baptized, there was a general hope, an, ex- an expectation, and even an eagerness that the Messiah would soon be coming on the scene. And after his baptism, that hope, that eagerness, and even those expectations were quickly directed towards him. Especially when he did things like turn water into wine, begin healing the sick, the lame the blind, and even bringing the dead back to life. These were the beginning manifestations that were told about in the book of John. The light shining in the dark world. But along with this light, this illumination, there began to be resistance against it, hostility toward it. We're given hints of this beginning in chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus inquiring of him, trying to, trying to determine who he was, especially in light of the signs and wonders that he was doing when held up alongside of his very questionable teaching. The separation between the light and the dark then continued to be revealed to us in chapter 5 when we see Jesus standing in the middle of the false worship at the pool of Bethesda, the false worship that is using his father's name and temple as its centerpiece. In the midst of this, he heals a lame man as further illumination of the truth of God's word, as further illumination of the darkness that these people were walking in. This brings about more hostility towards him by the established religious system, Verse 18 of chapter 5 tells us, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The events that we covered in chapter 6 happened a full six months after the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. They were all focused on those that considered themselves disciples of Christ. People who were with him on a daily basis, who watched him heal the sick, the blind, and the lame. People who John had not yet referred to as the Jews, even though they were Jewish. These these people seemed to be walking in the light, with the light, and desired to even have this light shine on them. That is, until the light was directed towards them. This is what happened in chapter 6. A chapter where we saw Jesus challenge these people who called themselves disciples, who seemed to have given themselves over to him, who had, these people who had even desired to make him their king, With these people having the light of the truth of God's love and word shined directly at them. And they could not abide this illumination. The truth of the light that had come into the world was offensive to them. So they turned back and no longer walked with him. Verse 66. It was after this that he, Jesus, the light of the world, then turns the truth of himself, shines the light of the word onto the remaining disciples in an even greater, more personal way. These 12 men had just heard the same offensive words that drove the others away. And they themselves were just as challenged by them as those that had seemingly rejected Christ. These men had been made to have the same brightness of this light of the word of God, the light that had come into the world, the light that was the life of man, shine on them, along with the multiplied thousands that had been in the synagogue on that day. And when others had walked away, they were left standing. It was then that Jesus asked them if they desired to go away as well. And it was then that he directed the light of the word of God even more directly onto them, revealing even more of the truth of the word of God to them. When he told them that they didn't stay because they chose him, but because he chose them. Verse 70. And even revealing to them that one of their group, the men that think that they chose to stay, the one that one of the twelve that were remaining, left of the thousands that had been there, that one of them would betray him. This is the reality of light. The more that it shines, the brighter that it gets, the more the reality of darkness is revealed. And John continues taking us down from that mountaintop of chapter 1 in our account today. Once again, another six months have gone by since the events of chapter 6. The Passover is long gone. Spring has been replaced by summer. Summer has been replaced by fall. The feast of booze was at hand. and We are now closing in on the end of the ministry and life of Jesus. And as he continues to shine his light into the dead, dark world, the world does the only thing that it can do, the only thing that it desires to do it makes the free will choice to reject him. But does darkness actually ever choose to flee from light? Is this the reality that we know? Have we ever turned a light on in a room and seen the darkness choose not to flee? Or does it do the only thing that it can do? Flee, because it is not light. It has been rejected by the light. We Christians can be discouraged by the events that are unfolding around us, thinking that the light of the world is being overcome by darkness. This seems to be the reality of what we're seeing happening all around us. But the truth is, There's no such thing as darkness. Darkness is only an absence of light. Wherever light shines, darkness is made to flee. Well, that's not very comforting. That doesn't make me feel any better about what's going on around us. That just shows that there isn't much light being shown out there. The light seems to be flickering out. we are looking at the wrong thing. Instead of staring out into the blackness of the the moral decay of the world, we should be focusing in on the light that continues to shine, the light that has already overcome the darkness, the light that we have seen already in our journey through the book of John, that was never concerned about darkness, the light that was not rejected by the darkness, but the light that has rejected the darkness and now has shown himself in that darkness, just to contrast how light he is and to reveal how dark the darkness is without him we need to focus in on that light the light that he's given to us the light that has made us to become children of light paul tells us in first thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8 you are children of light children of the day we are not of the night not of darkness Let us not focus on the non-reality of the darkness around us, but let us live in the reality of the light that has been made to shine in us, around us, and even through us. Our account today makes this reality more personal The events and interactions of chapter 6 were seen through a wide-view lens, capturing the expanse of the crowd that was following Christ and focusing in on only one person, and that was Jesus. But in our account today, that lens has been tightened up and and focuses in on a select group of people, an intimate group that had lived with Jesus, that shared the same mother, that he had, who had grown up in the same home with him, who, if there were any, ever any, that really would know Jesus, it would have been them. Those that are referred to as the Jews desired to kill Jesus. That's what we're told in our verses. This isn't hyperbole. This was reality. And because of this, Jesus had remained in Galilee, had remained in his home territory, had been with his family, and had continued to teach, to heal, to shine the light of the word into the world. And into this reality were once again brought. Only, time, only this time, the reality of verse 11 of chapter 1 is actually highlighted, where it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. In chapter 2, we are told that after he turned water into wine, he went home and spent time with his mother and brothers, verse 12. And this section of Scripture bolsters the truth that is given to us in chapter 4, verse 44, that says that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And outside of the commentary by John given to us here, what the brothers have said to, uh, to Jesus in our account today could have seemed to be encouraging statements, encouraging him to go to Judea, to the masses that would be at the Feast of Tabernacles, to go and prove that he was the light, that he was the promised Messiah. But verse 5 gives us all the information that we need to know to prove that this was not the case, for not even his brothers believed in him. And what his brothers say to him in verses 3 and 4 are filled with contempt and mockery. The sentiments that are displayed here are much the same as the ones that are displayed in Genesis chapter 37, verses 18 and 20. Verses that describe the thoughts and feelings of the brothers of Joseph toward him. They say, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him to one of the pits. The difference is that the brothers of Jesus were content with allowing the Jews to do their dirty work instead of actually carrying it out themselves as the brothers of Joseph were willing to do. Verses 3 and 4. So his brothers said, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. The statements made by his brothers about him going up to Judea prove the mockery that they're attempting. They had bad intentions and a bad understanding of who their earthly brother was. They thought that he wanted to be known openly They thought that he wanted to receive notoriety from the world, to become a worldwide sensation. And they thought that he was a coward. Which is why, even though he had those aspirations of becoming a superstar, he remained in the boonies of Galilee. But with all this said, we need to ask ourselves, why was this added here. Why is it important for us to know about this, to know how Jesus' brothers thought about him? What difference does it make? There's another occasion that his brothers are mentioned, when they, along with Mary, come to get him in Mark 3. The account of Mark 3 is very informative as to why this account was added here in Mark three, after Jesus had to- chosen the 12, after he had told them to have a boat ready for him in order that the crowd that had gathered wouldn't crush him. After that, we're told verses 20 and 21, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And, as when, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. But these aren't the verses that I was thinking about concerning why this tidbit of information was given here. Those are verses 31 through 35, which says, And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who? Are my mother and my brothers. And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Here is why we've been given this account today, why we have been told about this encounter and even what we're supposed to glean out of it. For who among us has not had our biological family at some point stand up, us, stand up and tell us, don't play high and mighty with me. I know who you are. They remember who we were and that we're no better than they are. And they're right. Because outside of God choosing us and regenerating us, and most importantly, cleansing the stain of sin and then making propitiation for that sin, we would be just like them. Sons of darkness. But this is not who we are any longer. But this was not the reality for Jesus, though. He had never sinned. These, his brothers, couldn't throw the sin of his youth into his face. He had lived a perfect life, his whole life. All they had was bad perceptions of his intended meaning to throw at him. Has this ever happened to you as well? Have you ever had someone accuse you and make an accusation about your motives for an action that you have done? Who have told you that I know who you are and I know why you did what you did and be totally off base about it? Jesus can relate. And have you ever had the heartbreak of being cast out by your biological family because of your relationship with the Eternal Father? Have you ever found yourself no longer having anything other than a last name in common with a group of people that you grew up with? Jesus can relate. Have you ever had your family call you out of your mind and attempt to come and take you away because of your relationship and obedience to the Lord? Not likely. But many of us know the truth that Jesus stated, that those within the family of God are more our family than any biological relationship that we might have. These sitting around you are your brothers and your sisters, your mother and your father, But as some of you have come to find out, as we have, there is nothing more gracious than to have God, have your biological family also be your spiritual family as well. Jesus knew this truth as well, only in a much more intimate and personal way because he would make propitiation for his mother and even some of his brothers as well. They had been given him by his father. He knew how amazing it is to be related spiritually to each other. But also at the same time, this account... This little vignette within this account is given us in order that we not disregard the humanness of Christ. We're told in Isaiah 53.3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. think about the sorrow that had to weigh heavy upon Christ, to have his entire family reject him, to have those that should have known because they had grown up with him, to have them not even know his character, to have them actually think wrongly about his character, It's one thing to be despised and rejected by those that are outside of your bubble. But how much more must the sorrow have been to have this be the truth concerning those within it? And we can try and diminish diminish this and say that this really wasn't painful for Christ. After all, he had that relationship with his father, and he had that relationship with his disciples. And knowing God knowing God makes all pain go away. Really? Is this the reality that you know? Does your relationship with the Lord ever stop the pain and heartache from that, that happens when you're attacked by a biological family or by anybody? Don't get me wrong. Knowing that Christ has redeemed you, being able to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us is amazing and completely healing. But it doesn't stop the pain in that moment. And as proof of this, we have the shortest verse in the Bible. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. But you can counter, but we don't know why Jesus wept. We're never told why he wept. And be that as it may, no one ever weeps out of indifference. Even when a person weeps because of surprise or happiness, that is a deeply felt emotion. And then there's people that cry or weep when they get mad or angry. Again, a deeply felt emotion no matter how you try to disprove it, Jesus wept because he felt something, because he had some deep-felt emotion of some kind. The truth is he had more deep-felt emotion, more than all men, more than all men combined. And he wept because in that moment, even though he had more than any other man. He had the most intimate relationship with both the Father and the Spirit. And even in that moment, he was surrounded by his disciples and his apostles. Even in that moment, he was overcome with emotion because of the pain and the sorrow that was going on around him and even because of him. And this encounter on this day, had to have hurt as well. You can't have your family attack you and not have it hurt. But that didn't cause Jesus to lash out at them. And it didn't cause him to shrink back from telling the truth to them either. And as we'll find out soon enough, it didn't cause him to alter his plans. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In this statement, Jesus isn't speaking of his hour, the hour that is mentioned earlier in John, which is his time of death. We know this because the words here, meaning time, are not the same as the ones that are used there, meaning his hour. What Jesus is doing here is creating the same sort of separation between himself and his brothers, that he did between Mary and himself in chapter 2, verse 4, when he said to Mary, his mother, what have I to do with you? Just as in that statement, he wanted to ensure that these men knew that there was a separation between them and Jesus, a point that he makes clear in verse 7 when he tells them that the world cannot hate them. Here again, we are given an imperative, meaning that it is truth. Much like in our last section, chapter 6, when Jesus told those that claimed to be his disciples that they could not come to him unless the Father drew them. The world cannot hate you. He didn't say to his brothers, the world may not hate you. He didn't say to them, Eh, the world probably won't hate you. The world cannot hate you. Because the world can only do that which is its character. But the world does hate me. There are those within the Christian circles that claim that this is hyperbole on the part of Jesus. That Jesus is speaking over the top that he's using language to make a point, and he didn't actually think that the world hated him. But there's nothing within this section of Scripture or any part of Scripture to support such a claim, a claim that is made to give credence to the semi-Pelagian view concerning the free will of man. And as we were told at the beginning of this section, the Jews were desiring to kill Jesus. A fact that is attested to later in this chapter. And a fact that will be proven a few short months from now. When out of hatred, the Jews will kill Jesus. And they will kill him for the exact reason that he tells these, his biological brothers today. Because he testifies that its works are evil. We are then told in verses eight and nine that he concluded this conversation with his brothers by telling them to go up to the feast that he wasn't going, simply simply because his time had yet not fully come. They went, and he stayed. But then in verse ten, we're told that he later went to the feast, but not publicly. So what gives? To understand what is going on here, you have to understand what this feast was. The feast of the Jews, as it's called in verse 2. The feast that was going on at this time. Verse 2 tells us in the ESV that it was the feast of booths was at hand. The feast, This feast was also called the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the last of the fall feast. It was held from October 2nd through October 9th Of our Gregorian calendar, and was the feast to celebrate the harvest that had just been brought in, which made it the most joyous of feasts. It was also a time that was used to seek the blessings of the Lord in the form of rain that would fall or should fall between October and March. This feast was first given to the Jews by God in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. Verses 42 and 43 of that chapter says, You shall dwell in booze for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booze, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booze when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. These booze were called in Hebrew sukkoth, which is why the Jews called this feast the Feast of Tabernacles. Because Sukkot means the same as Sukkot, or in Hebrew, tabernacles. In any event, the feast was to last for seven full days, with the first and the last days being full holy days, meaning no work could be done at all. Those middle days were more relaxed, where people could go about doing things, hanging out. But nothing that could be considered work, such as laundry, or sewing, or any manual labor, And this feast was a mandated feast, which means that there would have been a huge crowd streaming into Jerusalem for it. It would have been a pilgrimage of epic proportions. And it would have been the expectations of not only the religious leaders, but also the common people, that Jesus would have been there early, teaching, healing, doing his thing. This was the setting that his brothers were trying to convince him to go show himself at. They must have been able to tell that he wasn't preparing himself to head off to this feast as they were, which is why they thought wrong about him in the first place. They must have thought that his not preparing to go to the feast was either because he knew that he was a fake or because he was a coward, but he was neither, He had nothing to prove to these people. And he would not be going to this feast for the same reason that his brothers were going. For them, this was the feast of booze. For Jesus, this was the feast of booze that God had ordained. Jesus told his brothers in verse 8, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. There is an emphasis here in this verse that is intended, but it was also more likely than not missed by them just as much as it was missed by us. That emphasis was this feast. He told them to go up to to the feast, but that he would not be going up to this feast. He would not be going to a feast. I'm sorry, he would be going up to a feast, but not be going up to the ones that they were going to. He wasn't speaking of a different feast, other than the one that God had commanded in Leviticus, but he was speaking disparagingly about the feast that his brothers were going to. This is a marked difference. We can go to a true church, to a true worship service, one that brings glory and honor to God and not be truly worshiping the Lord. By the time that Jesus was alive, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles had lost most of its original meaning. It had gone from being a worship service to a religious service. The Jews no longer lived in meager huts for a week in commemoration of the Exodus period. They hired contractors to come in and build them elaborate little huts that they would all hang out in. They no longer came to give true thanks for the mercy that God had bestowed on them. This had become a party. It had become a religious spectacle, a spectacle that had somehow gotten tied in with the religious expectations of the coming Messiah, the Messiah that would set them free from Rome, that would provide abundantly for them and would usher in the new earthly kingdom that they wanted. The statement made by Jesus in verse 8 ties directly in with what we saw happen in chapter 6. When a mob of so-called disciples decided it was their time to make Jesus their king. Something that he would not allow to happen. Which is why he wouldn't participate in this feast. A feast that was no longer all about what God had done for them but more about what they expected God to do for them. And at that feast, a feast that was ordained by God, a feast where the hearts of those in attendance should have been focused on repentance and thankfulness, we are told in verse 11 that the Jews were looking for him and saying, where is he? The words that are used there don't mean looking for in a worried, concerned, or even expectant way. Those words are used when the law is looking for a criminal, when a hunter is out stalking game. This was the heart of the religious men at a religious ceremony as they performed their religious duties. Love and adoration for God was not driving them. Hate, envy, and a desire to kill God was. And even among the crowd who were gathered there, even those people were all off base concerning who Jesus was. At best, some of them thought that he was a good man, but others thought that he was a deceiver who was leading people astray. And no matter where they stood concerning Jesus, both opinions were wrong. And even more fundamentally, what's the truth that both groups knew that they were wrong, which is proven by verse 13, which says, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. How does that square with your witness? You've been sitting here, Listen to me talk about these people. You've heard the word read concerning what they thought about Jesus. And you should have come to some sort of opinion about them because of verse 13. That was the intended purpose of it being given to us in order that we would think about it, not just hear it and allow someone else to tell us what we should think about it, not so that we could hear it but really not pay attention to what was being said, and maybe not even care what was being said. We are given these verses in order to think about them. So what did you think when you heard that none of them would utter the name of Jesus because they were afraid of the Jews? Did you think? Man, that's probably a smart thing to do. Or did you think that they were cowards, Or did you think something in between? Let me ask you a follow-up question. Why do you not speak openly about Jesus? Why is it that all too often, even though that you know you've been given the perfect opportunity to speak to a person about Jesus, you don't? Let me tell you. And if you haven't seen the signs around us, you need to open your eyes. There is coming a day when there will be reason to fear speaking openly about Jesus. If you are afraid to speak his name now, what makes that you're going what makes you think that you're going to be courageous then? And if history were being written for future, future generations to read concerning life with Christ here, now, what would you want to be written about you? Especially in light of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10. Speaking to his disciples, as he's about to send them out to witness about him, he tells them con- the truth concerning the world, that it's dark, and that it hates him, and it will hate them as well. He tells them to beware of men, to understand that they will be persecuted, hated, killed. But then he says not to fear men. Fear God, for men can only kill the flesh. God kills flesh and then condemns To hell he finishes that thought up with this verse 32 and 33 so everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven but whoever denies me before men I will also deny before my father who's in heaven if acknowledging Christ before men can be equated to Christ acknowledging us before his Father in heaven, then it has to be much more than just showing up at a church service. And if denying Christ before men can be equated to denying us before the Father, then this has to be much more than you just saying, I don't know him. think on these things. But I'm going to end up today where I began. Back in chapter 1. Back to the point of why Jesus would not go up to this feast. Chapter 1 we're told in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that is translated as dwelt in this verse can also be rightly translated as tabernacled, because it means the same thing. The Feast of Tabernacles was given by God to commemorate the miraculous provision given by Him to His chosen people as He carried them through the wilderness for 40 years, a time when they were sojourners in a land that was not their home, a time is when they lived as exiles in a foreign land, a time when they lived in temporary housing. They were housed in tents. It was a time when he provided bread from heaven in the form of manna. It was a time when he went before them as a cloud during the day, and he protected them as a pillar of fire by night. It was a time that he provided water for them out of a rock that was struck for them. All of this was grace upon grace, and all of it foreshadowed the reality of the word that became flesh and tabernacled among them at that time. Jesus could not go up to that feast. The one that was no longer in celebration of what God had done in the wilderness. that was no longer centered on a relationship with him. And no longer pointed to the reality of the true tabernacle that would go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus could not go up to that feast. The one that was now centered around the felt needs of these people. The one that looked forward to their version of the Messiah. The one that this true Messiah could not give credence to by showing up at. He would go up to the true feast he would go to reveal that he was the true tabernacle the one into which all that belong to the father who have been given to the son will enter into communion with the father through him the true tabernacle in which We, who are called children of light, children of God, now and forevermore, make our dwelling in. This is why, from the very beginning of of the Christian church, the church has never celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. That feast, the original feast, was full of grace and truth. But that feast was merely a shadow of the reality of the even greater grace, the fulfillment of truth in the real feast that was given the church in the body and blood of the word that is tabernacled with us. We have been given a feast that we are commanded to celebrate not once a year, bringing our offerings to God, but as often as we gather together in remembrance of the one that has given himself once and for all time as the only offering that could satisfy the debt that we owed. And he has carried most of us here. For more than 40 years. In him we are sojourners in a world that is not our home. And in him we are traveling towards home, to a home whose foundation is not built by man. And in him we have been provided eternal bread of life and given living water for all eternity. Christ has gone up to a greater feast. And he has made a way for us to go as well. Now, let us go up to that feast. Praising the name of the Father who has given us the Son. The Word that has become flesh and tabernacled with us. Let's pray.